You're listening to The Human Factor from Inc. Magazine. I'm Eric Schoenberg, the CEO of Inc. and Fast Company. Now think of an entrepreneur and who comes to mind? Uh, a mogul like Zuckerberg? A mad genius like Musk? For me, the archetype is the person you're about to meet, Phil Libin. In Silicon Valley fashion, he ascended from programming to head a string of groundbreaking companies. One was Evernote, the productivity platform that was Inc.'s company of the year in 2011. Now, some of those companies made a ton of money, some failed, but this is the key for me. Phil never stopped brimming with his own startup ideas and supporting others, both as a managing director at VC firm General Catalyst or at his own startup factory, All Turtles. His latest venture is called Mm-hmm, and it recently raised $100 million from SoftBank. It's an all-turtles brainchild. Now, to talk with Phil is to be bombarded with mind-bendingly original, insanely clever takes on everything about founding, funding, and running a startup, which is why Phil is here. And you'll see what I mean. Welcome, Phil Libin. Thank you. Now, often these human factor episodes start with the guest's origin story, but um, I think inquiring minds want to know about, mm-hmm. as a company name, it's, it's fun and uh, friendly and uh, refreshingly free of vowels. So I, I'm, I'm curious, tell us what the company does and, and why mm-hmm is the name that made you say, uh-huh. Hmm. Well, uh, it is it is called uh, mm-hmm, and it's uh, kind of spelled the way that you uh, expect. And it started out as a joke. Um, we were just bored and depressed at the beginning of COVID and wanted something to be less bored and less depressed. So we just started goofing around, uh, but pretty quickly realized that uh, we had something that could you know, give people communication superpowers uh, if, if done right. And uh, that's what we're still working on. We are trying to invent the the essential communication tools for this new uh, post office world. So tell me, what are those tools? Well, I think um, the, 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 the way that we think about it is uh, there's, this, there's this hierarchy of, of communication. Uh, it kind of looks like this. Uh, and you can take just about any human interaction and you can decide which parts of it belong and which, part, which places in the hierarchy. And, 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 and everything becomes better when you do that. Uh, and all the way at the very top, kind of up here is when you're actually uh, in person with someone. And this is really scarce because you never make more of this. Uh, so whenever you're actually there, whenever you're like in person with someone, it's like very, very precious. Uh, you can't waste it. It's sort of a tragedy if you ever spend, you know, two hours with someone in person sitting in a room and then you're like, well, that was a waste of time because, you know, none of you are ever getting the time back. Uh, in the middle layer, which is like kind of what you and I are doing now, this is, you know, live video. It's not quite as precious. You know, we don't have to travel. Uh, to be together, but it's still it's still pretty important because uh, you know um, we're doing this at the same time. We're doing this synchronously, and so anytime you're doing this, um, it should be a conversation. It should be interactive. Uh, our our test for this is uh, I kind of call it the face hole test. It kind of works like this: like you uh, you look at a bunch of people having a conversation, and if one person is like moving their face hole a whole lot, and everyone else is like not moving their face holes, that's not a conversation. That's a lecture, and uh-huh. it shouldn't be done synchronously. 100% of those should be down here, which is pre-recorded because it's better. Uh, so that's the basic idea is uh, I think we give you communication superpowers by letting you decide like what ought to be synchronous, what ought to be asynchronous, 
what's live, what's recorded, and then moving elegantly between them. Uh, folks, you just got a, a very clever rendition of some of the tools that mm -hmm makes possible. Um, so given what you've just said, um, I gather that you're not in any hurry to bring um, the team from All Turtles or mm -hmm back to the office anytime soon. No, 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 no. We are never, we are never uh, going back uh, anywhere. In fact, I think this is kind of the big change in the world. I think uh, the, 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 the big change is happening is we're, we're, we're kind of, we're calling it the, the out of office world. I think mm -hmm. like, I think out of office is, uh, is kind of the name of the movement. I don't think it's like, it's not about remote work. It's really out of office. And when I kind of say out of office, I, like, I, I sort of want you to hear it. Like, as if I'm saying out of jail, like there was this like huh. central thing in your life that dominated your life before and that really constrained what you can do and now you're free from it uh it, it, it's kind of like that uh i think uh the out of office world is probably the best thing to happen to people you know in my lifetime and uh yeah we just want to want to make the most of it uh you know not knowing how mm -hmm works uh i'm i am imagining you you know playing these tools sort of like i'm Church organ style. Organ, right? yeah, right. Uh, something like that. Uh, <laughs> a I'm hitting the synthesizer next guy in the background of a rock band. How does yeah. it work? Um, well, you basically decide what you're going to say. And uh, I mean, I'm, I'm controlling it all live just by, by typing some things in while we're talking and hitting the uh -huh. next button. Uh, but, um, you know, like any creative tool, like you, you make it fun. You can, people get really good at it, really expressive pretty quickly. Uh, it's, it's amazing. You know, we've been using it internally. Uh, at, at, at a few of our companies. And it's kind of amazing how, how creative people get uh, pretty, pretty, pretty fast. Uh, like I, I was in the beginning, definitely like the person who used it the most. But at this point, there's like many people in the company who are much better at it than I am. And, you know, give people a creative tool, they're going to be creative. Did you use mm -hmm to pitch SoftBank? Yeah, yeah. In fact, we never, we never had a pitch deck. Uh, I never made a deck. Uh, -huh. uh, it was just a demo. We just used, you know, we just used basically this. Uh, in fact, we posted, uh, the video, uh, of the demo for, for both Sequoia and SoftBank. Um, it's, it's on our website. It's the first, uh, if you, if you go to our website and you look at the events, uh -huh. there's a, uh -huh. there's a thing called mm -hmm summer. And, uh, the first keynote is literally the, the demo we gave. Ah, good. Well, uh, I hope people will follow up on that. I certainly intend to, you know, Phil, I have always, um, thought of you as someone who valued entertainment and humor in everything you did. I remember the column you wrote for Inc., which was somehow a, a, an impossible, unlikely combination of wisdom and humor throughout. Um, and also, uh, you may not remember this, but um, we were at a conference together in 2016 in Lisbon, right after mm. Trump had won the election. And everyone yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, was full of you know, media folk and, and technologists and everyone was pretty depressed and no one could figure out what had happened exactly. And you said that it was pretty clear that Trump was bound to win because he was the more entertaining of the two candidates. Yeah. And that's just the way votes go. Didn't work well, this last time for him though. So this is the, uh, uh, well, maybe, maybe, you know, he was a little less entertaining, a little more, <laughs> a little more desperate. Um, yeah, flip the odometer over a bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> maybe it's possible. I, uh, I, it was humor clearly worked for you um, in raising money. It works for you in your style. How do people, what's the right way to use it in business? Well, look, I think, um, I think fundraising is, is, it's pretty straightforward. Um, 
especially for early early stage rounds and for you know for tech people like if you're raising you know seed rounds a rounds kind of early stage stuff uh it's pretty easy i'm actually i'm, I'm surprised that more more entrepreneurs are kind of confused about this so hmm. you know after evernote I, I retired or semi-retired for a few years so i was i was a vc and uh, I just did some stats. And um, when I was a professional investor, I would interact with about 3,000 companies per year. So I'd get about 3,000 pitches a year. And out of those 3,000, I would, I would meet with about 600. And I would invest in two or three. So the funnel mm. would go from 3,000 to three, uh, one in 1,000. Uh, and that was pretty typical. Like I wasn't like particularly precious. Like that was just, that's what investors do at early stage tech stuff. Uh, and, and even those, even those, um, those 3,000 had already been pre-filtered. Um, so basically if you're pitching an investor for an early stage round, you've got to be the most impressive thing they've seen all year or else you have no mm -hmm. shot. Like mm -hmm. if you're the most impressive thing they've seen today, it's not good enough. You're the most impressive thing they've seen that month. Not good enough. You got to be the most impressive thing they have seen all year. So the question is like, who are you going to be impressive to? And what's so impressive about you? Like what, what is it about your presentation? That's going to be the most impressive they've ever seen. And there's not that many options, right? Like you could have the most impressive numbers that they've seen all year, the most impressive traction. It's amazing, right? You like show up, you're like, look, here's our, here's our hockey sticks, best numbers you've seen all year. Okay, great. That's a very good way to get investment. But you need to have the best numbers they've seen all year. Very few people have that. Maybe you've got the most impressive team they've seen all year, but that's pretty rare. Maybe you've got the most amazing, most impressive idea they've heard all year, but that's, you know, unusual. I never had any of those three things. So like, I just knew that I had to be the most entertaining thing they've seen all year. Uh, and I, and I was, so, you know, when I'm pitching, like my job is, yeah, this is going to be the most entertaining pitch you've seen all year. No excuses, yeah. period, full stop. And uh, it's good enough. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that was kind of key. Like this is a very, very intentional because I don't have numbers yet. And, you know, the team is amazing, but probably not the most impressive team they've seen. Well, maybe it is the most impressive team they've seen this year, but that's only this time. That's only, I'm on my fifth startup. It's, it's, it's easier the fifth time around. So yeah, uh, it is your job if you're an entrepreneur to not bore investors. In fact, more than not bore them, you gotta be the most entertaining pitch they've seen all year. So, you know, if you're not even going to try, what's the point? Wow. That's a pretty hard bar. Um, well, it's just math. so of those 3000 companies that you saw, uh, every year, um, you did invest in three, were they entertaining or are there other criteria that you would, you know, that you'd recommend or that you would, that, that came to mind for you, that you would advise I mean, startups to, to bring with them in their case? They all had to be, you know, uh, exceptional, right? In some way, right? They were all, they were all the one in a thousand, you know, exceptional. So some combination of, you know, chemistry with the team, the idea, what I think the world really needed, um, and yeah, it's just, you know, it's, 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 it's a, it's always a high bar. Um, uh -huh. but I think if you flip, if you look at it from the point of view of, of the entrepreneur, the ratio is actually different. It actually works in the entrepreneur's favor. In fact, now more than ever, because if you're raising money, it doesn't matter how many people say no, literally irrelevant, right? It only matters that one person says yes. And so if somebody says no, Fantastic. Great. Like pretend it never happened. Just move on. I don't even bother asking why not. Cause like, you don't have time at that point. You just got to go to the next investor. Cause you just need one person to say yes. And now that you can do all the pitches over video, it's the best time in the history of the universe to raise money because like your marginal cost of doing another investor call is like pushing the send button one more time. So you may as well, you know, record a, a, a pitch, put it in the bottom of that pyramid where it's, you know, it's pre-recorded, make it entertaining send it to a hundred people, a thousand people, and then, you know, do some follow-up calls with, with people as needed. So 
yeah, even though from the investor's point of view, the math looks very daunting from an entrepreneur's point of view, it's, it's actually great. Oh, that's great. I never thought of it that way, but um, that is um, a, a thing I frequently say in conversation with you, Phil. Um, mm-hmm uh, is not your first rodeo. Uh, and in fact, mm-hmm is, is an, uh, a brainchild of all turtles. Um, tell me about all turtles and how it's different from, say, General Catalyst. And, um, and I think, again, you're going to have to explain the name. Well, uh, so the idea with All Turtles, it's a, it's a, it's a product studio. Uh, and um, the point of the mm-hmm name was so that people would stop asking me about why All Turtles has such a weird name. It's like, <laughs> I was like, you think that's a weird name? Just hold my beer. Wait, wait till the next one. And it's mostly succeeded. Very few people ask about the old turtles name anymore uh, ever since we launched. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's turtles all the way down, right? It's, it's the idea is that whatever we build, we, we, we stand on the shoulders of the people that have come before us and we support the people that are, that are coming after us. And, and it's a product studio. Uh, it's, it's pretty straightforward. The, the, the main hypothesis behind it is, is that the Silicon Valley model is pretty dumb. Uh, kind of the Silicon Valley style, the like sort of VC startups model uh, uh, is pretty stupid for a few, a few different reasons. But I think the main one is like, if you imagine, like, let's say you're um, one of the most brilliant musicians in the world alive today, like literally like one in a million, like Mozart level, like genius uh, musician. Uh, um, you don't have to start a music company, right? Like the platforms exist, like Spotify and YouTube yeah. and like, you just play and you're going to reach a billion people if you're really that good. And if you're like one of the most, um, you know, talented writers in the world, you don't have to start a publishing company. You, you know, you go and you write, uh, you write for, you know, for Inc or for Substack or whatever, right? The platforms exist. If you're one of the most talented filmmakers in the world, you don't have to start a film studio. You like go and make Korean zombie movies for Netflix or something. Uh, but if you're one of the most talented uh, product, like people in the world, like, you have to make a little startup first. Like you come to investors and we're like, okay, this may be a good idea. And maybe you're really brilliant at a product, but, but before you do that, here's the Wikipedia page on what a 49A valuation is and to make sure you get your 83B filings in time. And here's how you have a board of directors and here's how you hire people and here's how you fire people. And here's like the 10,000 other things that you have to do to make this like fragile, crappy little thing called a startup that is likely to fail for the 10,000 reasons, which have nothing to do with your idea and aren't even interesting but are just really hard to do. And so we take these like brilliant, allegedly brilliant product people, and we force them to become mediocre CEOs before they can see whether they're really brilliant product people. And we don't do this for any other elite creative industry. So uh, goal of all turtles is just to be a studio in the same way that Netflix is a studio. We just want to get really brilliant people and we make stuff and we make stuff together professionally. And we're not, we don't care if it becomes a startup or not. We do everything that's necessary. And then, if it looks like the product needs to be owned by an independent startup, then we'll make an independent startup. And if like we did with mm-hmm and others, or if it looks like it's some other outcome is better then we do that outcome. We don't, we're not fetishizing the startup. We, we just want there to be high quality products. Uh, by the way, uh, I think it's uh, important to point out to the audience that these questions have not been planted with Phil. So um, Mozart, for example, is uh, just purely spontaneous group from, uh, the stuff that Phil had already. I push the I push the Giphy slide button in mm-hmm, and I type in Mozart and it pops up. So it's not that hard. That that's that's amazing. That is truly um, it unleashes creativity. It's a very, that's very cool. 
Um, you had mentioned that um, in the whole Silicon Valley model of saying that, you know, you, uh, you know, you have a great product or, you know, you're talented in some other way. Now you need to become a baby CEO and make all the mistakes that baby CEOs make. Um, however, that's the machinery that you went through. Yeah. Uh, and you started from, uh, you know, a, 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 a self-described computer nerd who started a couple of companies and found yourself at the helm of a fairly substantial company in Evernote. What did you learn about leadership along the way? What are the key lessons that you might pass on? Uh, I mean, I probably passed on all the ones that, that, that actually made any sense in that, in that very brief ink column that you, that you talked about. Uh, it was, you know, four or five things <laughs> to figure it out. Uh, I think, okay, there's two things that I think I've learned since then that are really key. Uh, that I really kind of wish I knew before. One of them I figured out pretty early, so I'm happy. One of them I didn't figure out until a few years ago, and I wish I'd figured it out earlier. Uh -huh. um, the thing that I figured out pretty early already at Evernote was that um, whenever I think that, that, oh man, that's a hard decision, like something's a hard decision, I catch myself thinking like something's a hard decision. Um, I immediately, like I've trained myself, the alarm goes off in my head and I go, wait a minute, brain. When I say this is a hard decision, what do I mean? Do I mean that it's hard to know the correct answer or do I mean that it's unpleasant? And as soon as I think that, I realize that 90% of the time that I think something is a hard decision, it's actually not a complicated decision to know the right answer. It's just unpleasant. Um, and I think everyone confuses those two things. I think people conflate difficult decisions to difficult decisions in which it's difficult to know the correct course of actions from decisions where it's pretty straightforward to know the correct course of action. You just don't want to do it because it's unpleasant. Mm. And, uh, and then obviously as a CEO or as a founder, like the unpleasantness doesn't matter. You just have to do it, you know, anyway. Um, that was a big deal when I kind of figured that out. Uh, a lot of the stuff that I used to agonize over as being difficult decisions or hard decisions, turns out they're not hard at all. They're just unpleasant. And I can suffer because of them, because they're unpleasant. I can feel pain because of it, but I don't have to agonize over them. I don't have to take the mental energy. I just accept the pain of doing the unpleasant thing if it's the correct thing to do, which, you know, frees a lot of time to also do the right, to do the right things. Um, so that was kind of a big deal. I kind of wish I'd, you know, figure that out sooner. Phil, uh, um, I, I have, I think I know the answer to this question, but what, what's an example of the unpleasant decisions that you used to agonize over? I mean, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's just about any time that you, that you find that you think something is a hard decision. Like, uh, I mean, the big one for me at Evernote was whether I should step down as CEO or not. Right. That was like mm. a hard decision, but it actually turns out like, it wasn't that hard. I wasn't enjoying it. I thought I can get someone much better. It was just an unpleasant thing. But, but a much more in a micro, in, in a, you know, in a smaller sense, it's like every time you think you have to fire someone, usually like that's not actually a difficult decision. It's just unpleasant. Um, if you're deciding, you know, if you're deciding what, what kind of thing to build, whether or not you should cut a particular feature, uh, I would, I would say, you know, anytime that you think that you're not sure what the answer is, ask yourself that question. Are you, do you not know what the answer is or do you, or is the answer unpleasant? And whenever I think about it that way, you know, maybe your ratio is different, but for me, it's like 90% of the time, it's like, oh no, I know what the answer is. I, I just, it's just unpleasant for me. So that's kind of a superpower to be able to deal with those, you know, correctly because everyone else like spends so much energy pretending to agonize over it where really they could just make the decision and then just, you know, just deal with the pain that it brings. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Was, was that the realization you had early in your career or the one that you came to just a couple of years ago? That was pretty early. I think that was uh -huh. pretty early. And I think that was pretty, I think that was, I think that, I think that's been pretty key. 
Uh-huh. Um, like a lot of things are easier uh, when I when I realize that. All right, all right, that makes sense. So, so what was the other one? The second uh, key oh. epiphany. So I think I've been thinking about it like this. Like imagine if uh, imagine that you're like a world class skier, uh, you know, Olympic level, just an amazing skier. I'm not. I've gone skiing once in my life. I'm never going to go again. But like, let's just say you're like a great <laughs> skier. You're skiing, what are they called? Moguls, bumps, whatever. You're just great. I'm 20 years old, you're fantastic. And you kind of know that when you're skiing, you're, you're going really hard. You kind of know you're like, you're sort of banging up your knees. You know, you try to take care of yourself, but you know, you're causing damage to yourself. And that's that everyone kind of understands that. And it's expected because, you know, your knees are hardware and you're skiing really hard. Now, let's say flash forward 30 years. Now you're 50. No one thinks that like you're a much better skier at 50 than at 20 because you've got 30 more years experience. No one's like, oh man, you've been doing this for 30 years. You must, re- you must be an amazing skier. You're like, well, yeah, I guess in some narrow sense, you know, you have 30 more years of experience skiing, but like in most ways, you're not nowhere near as good as you were when you were 20, because you've been banging up your knees for 30 years and people get that. They, they accept it. Knees are hardware, but for whatever reason, we like entrepreneurial society tends to think that like, yeah, knees are hardware, but like your brain is software. And it's not, your brain is also hardware. It's not, it's not magical. It's really not that different from knees. Uh, and you bang it up and being a CEO and being a founder is really damaging. It's really stressful. Uh, you could try to take care of yourself. You try to mitigate the damage, but you can't, you can't prevent it. You're constantly in fight or flight instinct. You're constantly stressed out. It is a brutal thing to do. And yet I think we don't realize it. We don't think of it as the same way as skiing. And so, uh, you know, I'm about to turn 50 in a few months and people all the time will be like, oh, you're in your fifth startup. You know, you've been a CEO for 30 years. It must be so much easier now. Like, no, it's not in the slightest bit easier. It's, it's, it's much, much harder because I've got 30 years of like beating up my brain. Uh, and I didn't understand that until a few years ago, because I think a lot of us, a lot of us learn some very bad lessons in our twenties when we, when we start out and, uh, and we just keep, we keep CEOing the same way, you know, at age 50, as we did at age 20, and you just can't do that anymore. So I think wow. like the lesson is like, if I was going to ski now, which I'm obviously not going to, I wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't even try to do it the same way I was doing it in my twenties. I would have to do it a different way. Well, I, I can't CEO the same way either. I got I got I got a CEO differently. Uh, and, uh, uh, that was a big realization that really affected my life. Uh, I wish I'd figured it out sooner. Uh, Phil, that just sounds like the, uh, acquisition of wisdom. Uh, you, you probably, are a better CEO if you're going to CEO differently from the way you were when you were 20, especially given that metaphor, uh, which puts me in mind of your riding, you know, roughshod on your, uh, you know, with your staff under your skis uh, when you're 20 and now being a little bit more gentle. Isn't that better? I wonder, I wonder, like, I wonder how many years you get in that magical window of when you start accumulating wisdom before you start like forgetting all of it. And I'd be like, I wonder if I get, <laughs> I wonder if I'll get a decade. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I do want to uh, dig a little bit deeper on that, on that leadership question. And you, you said, um, that you wouldn't lead the way you did when you were in your twenties. So how have you grown as a leader? Well, I think, um, I think a big part of it is, um, uh, there's no, real room for heroism anymore uh i can't rely on brute force i'll just do it myself um and it just doesn't work and so i need to have a very different relationship with the team um 
because you know you just can't you just can't do it you can't do everything yourself so it's a, it's a it, it feels like an entirely different kind of job than it was you know earlier um i i've had to like i've had to train myself to enjoy certain sensations that i never that i never enjoyed before because i realized that i have to i have to learn how to enjoy them because it's the only way i'm going to like build a habit like you you, you know if, if you know you have to do something the only way you can get yourself to do it is to like learn how to like it because if you mm -hmm. like it then you'll do it a lot if you don't like it you'll never do it so for example, I've had to learn to like um, the taste of being wrong, um, which I never used to. I used to not like being wrong. I think most people don't like the taste of being wrong, but it's actually really important to like being wrong because um, you know, if, if, I, if I think something and, and, and somebody on my team like contradicts me and thinks something else and turns out that they're right and I'm wrong, like that's amazing, right? Because like, that's much more scalable. If my company can only move forward when I'm right, that's a very non-scalable way for it to move forward. Obviously, like I could be wrong an infinite number of times. I can only be right, you know, a few times. So if I can teach myself to enjoy the feeling of being wrong and having somebody else on my team actually be so much smarter than I, than I am and get it right, like that's a, that's a much more scalable way. Uh, but it's, you know, until you, until you learn to like it, it's kind of unpleasant. Um, and there's all sorts of like, there's all sorts of stuff like that. Uh, like I've realized that my, my happiest time as a CEO now is um, uh, when I see that the team has done something and it came out great and I had no idea they were even working on it. Oh, I love that. That makes me so happy. And it happens. Like it happens, it happens more and more frequently, but only like, only because I really try to like set up the conditions where there's always a strong chance that we're like something amazing is going to happen. I didn't even know the team was working on it. Um, it's great. It's the best, yeah. but that used to never happen because I used to always be like, no, I have to know about everything and, uh, and so on. Um, so yeah, I think philosophically there's like a, I'm, I'm very much trying to see oh, different, uh, <laughs> as I'm older and, you know, succeeds. I'm sure it's successful to some extent and it's a failure and a different extent, but there's really no option, but to do it, if I want to keep doing this work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll say it again, Phil, it certainly sounds to me like the accumulation of wisdom, um, and that maybe, when you were energetic and in your 20s and trying to make all the decisions and be right all the time, you were just not being a very good CEO. Just entirely a possible. Greenhorn. That sounds yeah. like a very common sort of part of the entrepreneurial journey. I, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, how you take care of that hardware um, sitting behind your eyes. Uh, at one time, you talked um, in one of your columns in Inc., in fact, about learning piano. Uh, are you still doing that? No, I, I, uh, I got divorced and I lost custody of the piano. Uh, so I've, I've downsized. I, I downsized to a, to a ukulele and then a harmonica. So I was learning harmonica for a while, but then uh, it turned out that that was a, 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 I was able to annoy many more people with a harmonica than I could with the piano. Uh, and so, yeah, so that all, that all stopped. But then I was learning Portuguese for a while and I'm still, I'm still a little bit uh, learning Portuguese. So that's, that's, that's my new thing. I'm, ah, I'm, doing, well, that's good. I'm doing Duolingo Portuguese. Uh, well, that sounds like a pretty good, uh, Portugal is a great place to go visit. In fact, uh, you and I were both there together That's right. five years ago or whatever that was. Um, yeah, beautiful country. Um, well, another thing that you might've done that might be good for the old hardware is leave Silicon Valley and go yes. to Bentonville, Arkansas, a place mainly famous until you got there for being the home of Walmart. What made you pack up from California and move to Arkansas? Well, um, 
I'm, I'm really glad I did too, because it, it, it's, it's really kind of opened my eyes to, to this whole out of office world uh, mm. and, and where I think it's going. Uh, I didn't think about it too much. Um, basically, I just wanted to, I just wanted to flee, um, you know, from San Francisco for a few months, um, just, you know, wait out COVID. And uh, I was living in the mission. I was living right in the middle of San Francisco for, for 14, 15 years. Uh, well, 14, 15 years in, 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 in the Bay Area, about six years in the middle of San Francisco. And it's just got to be too stressful. So I thought, uh, let's go somewhere quiet. And we had some friends who uh, got a job at Walmart and moved to Bentonville. And they said, hey, it's peaceful and quiet and no one will ever find you here. Uh, so loaded up the loaded up the car and drove across the country and thought, you know, thought it'd be here for a few months. Um, but really liked it, like really, really like it. So at this point, it looks like, I mean, I'm not really sure what it means to, to be in a place permanently at this point. Um, but, uh, but I think I'll be here for, for a while. Cause it's, it's pretty great. Uh, it, it, it really, um, it made me realize a bunch of stuff that really influenced the product that really influenced, mm -hmm, uh, that, uh, like, I don't think mm -hmm could have, would have developed in this way, uh, if I wasn't, uh, if I wasn't in, in Arkansas in Bentonville. Can you explain that? What's the connection? So the, the way that we've been thinking about it now is uh, um, is this, and you're going to call this the this is the out of office loop. This is the, uh -huh. the loop. It's kind of the virtuous cycle, uh, and the idea is uh, quality of life improves quality of work, and quality of work improves quality of life. And mm -hmm. so um, if you if you give your yourself and, and and your team the opportunity to improve their quality of life by figuring out where do they want to live, what kind of neighborhood, when they want to work, where they want to work from, when they want to spend time with their kids or their friends or health. You're kind of giving you 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 demolish this office, which is preventing things, and you let people improve their quality of life. Uh, that for knowledge workers, for creative people, that improves their quality of work. Um, and of course, the if when you improve the quality of work, that that gives more satisfaction, more meaning, more money, which you can then pump back into improving quality of life. And so you kind of get this, you know, you kind of get this loop, right? It just it just yeah. keeps it just keeps spinning and spinning. It's this flywheel. Um, and the thing that was blocking this, I think, for most people before was the office, uh, this idea that you had to like every day, you know, you got to wake up three hours earlier than your body's ready to wake up so that you can sit in traffic for two hours so that you can be in the same place wearing headphones to ignore other people that also have to be there without wanting to be there so that you can sit in traffic for two hours on the way back. Maybe you get home in time to, you know, uh, tuck your kids into bed two minutes before they lose consciousness and everything else. Everything else in your life, you know, art and music and family and, and self-care and, 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 and curiosity and education, everything else gets pushed out because the very center of your life is, is this office. Everything else gets pushed out to the weekend or to, 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 to vacation. Uh, so like the, the, the office prevents this flywheel from spinning. And um, we're just trying to get it started. We're trying to get it started for, for, for us uh, and then build a product to get it started for as many people as possible. Um, and it's, it's pretty amazing. It, it, it works really well. Uh, so for example, um, I work from lots of different places. Like I don't, I don't work. Uh, people think that like being distributed means work from home and it doesn't like, I don't like, I'm not at home right now, right now I'm in this cabin that we rent by the lake. Sometimes I work from home. Sometimes I work from this beautiful lakeside cabin. Uh, if I'm, if I need to be creative and like solve a particular problem, I'll, I'll work from, from this amazing museum that's, that's nearby here called Crystal Bridges by myself or with my team, uh, walk through it, you know, sit in the boardroom, be surrounded by amazing art and nature. Sometimes I work from the gym or from the pool because uh, I'm, I'm a member of this club and, you know, I can, I can take a Zoom call and then if I have a half hour in between meetings, I can go for a swim. 
And then a half hour later, I'm back because, you know, there's a nice showers and changing rooms. I would never be able to do that before, like go swimming in the middle of the day. And it turns out that, that, that swimming laps in a really nice pool is the exact opposite of being in a Zoom call. It's like the opposite in every way. Every sensation is like 180 degrees different when you're swimming in a nice pool, doing laps. And if you're sitting in a call, it's like the ultimate recharge. So I can choose where I want to work from a few hours at a time based on what I'm trying to optimize for, what kind of work I want to do. I don't have to go to like a single central place that's not ideal for anything. That greatly improves quality of life. Uh, and in a way that also makes me much more productive, improves quality of work. Well, then our company is more successful and we can get, we can pay ourselves more and, and so on. And so it keeps spinning and spinning and spinning. Uh, it's, it feels like a very important change in the world. Yeah. Um, like I said, yeah. the most important thing I think is that's happened to humanity in my lifetime. Um, I'm going to ask you to just, a, here's an out of the blue question. I'm going to ask you to uh, solve a big problem in the world that may be, um, and if you could solve it, it might be the second biggest thing that happened uh, in our lifetime, is um, imagine that you are, I, I brought up uh, Zuckerberg at the very beginning of, of this episode as a part of the intro. I know you couldn't get Zuckerberg, you couldn't get Elon, but you know, I was free in the cabin. So yeah, I, I heard the intro. <laughs> uh, that's right. Yeah, that's well, uh, you got, you know, I'm busted. You got me there. Um, <laughs> we'll have Elon on next week. But uh, the, the, the question was, imagine that you are Zuck and that you um, created a sort of runaway Frankenstein monster that uh, you, know, you wanted to have a successful company and instead you ended up as the you know, speech mayor of a third of the world's population. And um, in addition to making yourself insanely rich, you were also ruining democracy and uh, enabling genocide. Uh, what would your advice be to uh, an entrepreneur who found himself in that position? Look, Mark uh, is um, set up the company very carefully and very skillfully to be in control of it, right? And he's still in control of it, mm -hmm. right? And everyone who invested in the company invested knowing that he calls all the shots. So he can just fix it unilaterally. Like no one else can. Mm -hmm. I mean, my advice is just like, yeah, just fix it immediately. That probably means losing two thirds of market cap uh, because you basically have to, you have to get, you have to get rid of the totally misaligned, you know, business model uh, of, you know, just monetizing every, every little click, trying to monetize every bit of attention. So it's probably just have to jettison that, which will, you know, which will probably eliminate 80% of revenue and probably that the same amount of market cap, but you know, who cares? Right. Well, the investors knew this, knew this what they were getting into. He could just do it himself. Uh, and he should, because, uh, because yeah, I think Facebook overall uh, is something that, uh, in you know, with no bad intentions, turned out to be I think right now fairly bad for the world. And he can fix it. He's put himself in a position where he has full control of it. He should exercise that control, and he should dismantle all of the stuff that's bad for the world and 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 reassemble it in a way that's virtuous. And maybe that'll never put the company back to the size that it is right now. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. It's hard to predict. But yeah, it's his company. That's what I would do. Good, right? His company, um, our world. Um, would you leave us with um, one kind of cardinal piece of advice for startup entrepreneurs or CEOs, leaders uh, of companies of any size? You get your pick between the two. What would that be? I mean, for entrepreneurs, it's clear, right? It's just don't do it. 
you know, <laughs> not too not? late. Quit. <laughs> Get out. Uh, yeah. Look, I think uh, I think all of us are guilty. Uh, me and 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 you, uh, Eric. I think we're all guilty of of a certain amount of like uh, you know fetishizing the the the, the entrepreneurial lifestyle. Uh, and, uh, and kind of conflating, like being entrepreneurial, which I think like the act of being entrepreneurial is, 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 is something that's, that's wonderful. It's very positive, but really having that mean like starting a company, starting a business, which it doesn't have to mean. Mm-hmm. And, you know, starting a company, starting a business is a, is a really, uh, is a really difficult thing. And it's not a very good way to make money for most people. Uh, and so I think, uh, if anyone is in it, for the alleged glamour and for the lifestyle, uh, it's just a really bad reason. And you should, you should get out, you should get a job. Uh, and if you're in it, because if you, if you want to start a company, the only legitimate reason to do it is because you can't not start it because you, you, you see something that the world just needs so much that, you know, even if you're hundred percent guaranteed to fail and, and, and ruin your body and mind while doing it, it's still, it's still worth it. Um, and you know, there's 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 a bunch of people who 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 are doing that, uh, but I think if you're not, then then get out because it's if it's just about the money or something else or the prestige or something, it's it's just a it's it's not a good way to it's not a good way to lead your life. Great, uh, I think we could leave it there. It's a, entrepreneurship is something you should do because you have to, and it's the only alternative that you can envision. Um, well, Phil, um, that is, I'm glad that you were one of the guys who had to, um, because you, you've, you've done a lot of good for the world and, um, and also for us at Inc., by the way, we loved that column and, uh, thank you. and much else besides. Anyway, Phil, thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Eric. That's all for this episode of The Human Factor. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen so you don't miss the next episode. The Human Factor is produced by Joshua Christensen with help from Blake Odom. 